Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Misha, how are you doing this morning? Well, thank you so much. Uh, big fan of your podcast. Very delighted to be on. Appreciate you taking the time to come on. Um, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Sure. So um, uh, some of the big ideas I, I, I'm interested in. I mean, I mean professionally, I, I'm an investor. Um, the, I, I, the stuff I read, though, um, you know, it's Sometimes it's, it's like business or, or investor-related stuff, but um, but to be honest, I've been reading a lot of um, history, um, you know, writing in my in my weekly newsletter around the, the books I read, or about um, Judaism, or about um, you know a lot of the the, the you know, the kind of social dynamics that um, probably, uh, in my view, generally go undernoticed, but seem to govern everything. Around us, you know, you know, changes in, in um, you know, uh, the mating market or male and female um, relations or geopolitics or um, you know echoes through um, through U.S. history or, or just reading World War Two and the like. So to be honest, pretty pretty um, eclectic, I guess. You know, the, uh, that's probably where I start. Given I write this weekly newsletter, that's kind of um, you know been been um, been growing uh, nicely, and I find quite quite, quite rewarding. Um, but um, but yeah, so like I, I, it, the, my, my writing and my intellectual journey, I describe as uh, yeah, pretty pretty eclectic. I love that. I love that. Um, one, one of the things that stood out to me when I first encountered your writing, uh, which I really liked, was um, I've always had this sense that Peter Zihan, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. I've only read it. Um, you know, uh, he has this sense of the future as being very much um, just there's it's going to play out. It's very definite. Uh, it, it's like, but, there, but there's not much we can do about it. It's just going to play out because there's these actors and it's all kind of predetermined, which I like I, I'm against like for some like, I don't know, philosophical or just like I, I don't like it, you know, personally. Um, but it, it seems to be and you picked up on that kind of notion that he has. It's all just determinative. Um, what do you think about that? And, and how determined do you think we are by geography and these things? You know, is Australia, uh, you know, just blessed with these natural resources? Uh, and, and being an island for, for a long time, and all, all you know, the America is in a good place because we don't have land borders with any you know of our enemies, um, and, and and will eventually just be on top because of that. And there's nothing China can really do. You know, this this sense of like inevitability. Um, do you think that is accurate, or do we have more agency perhaps than uh, Zihan would like to believe? Yeah, it's a great question. So you're referring to a book review I wrote um, comparing um, his book um, with Bruno Makesh's uh, book. And, 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 and basically, yeah, uh, Zaihan's book that you're referring to is Disunited Nations. He's got a series on this. And he's kind of famous for um, being very much a geographic determinist and basically saying, um, you know, your your neighbours, your energy de- uh, dependence, um, you know, whether you're an energy importer or exporter, whether you're whether you're food dependent or independent, um, and and like kind of determine 
uh, your future. And I think that's um, that's extremely powerful, frankly. And I think um, in the same way, when you kind of read Jared Diamond's um, you know, Guns, Germs and Steel is effectively a geographic determinist um, outlook, um, I think it's it's very seductive um, and, and it's quite powerful. I think, um, you know, and I think you kind of get to the, crux of it you know part of the the fundamental philosophical question um and i don't really have an ideological view i find kind of both sides seductive in in, in different ways and it's hard to know what the real truth is um but your fund your fundamental question is you know are we are we just really um led along by you know the winds of geography or you know do we kind of exert you know human will onto the world and can we wrap you know, the world according to our own needs, you know, are we, are we genuine free agents or, or not? And so obviously this is a, this is a massive question and, and, you know, I obviously do not sit here with the answer, but it's interesting to kind of, um, you know, uh, to kind of understand the shape of, of, of these questions. And it's interesting to kind of note the kinds of folks who are attracted to, to one or the other. Um, you know, I find um, the, the more interesting for example, VC or, or investor folks or founders, um, you know, who are really, um, you know, their kind of worldview is shaped by their belief in the founder as this person kind of exerting the will to power onto the world. They're quite repulsed by this idea that we we, we simply, um, and, and I know you're a founder, so this is perhaps yes, so, yeah, partly, yes, yes. And, and it's probably why founders are probably conservative as well in, in, in right. a sense. Like, there's obviously Judeo-Christian, um, you know, deep Judeo notion of free will, which kind of comes into this. And so, um, and so, you know, the, the idea is that no, actually, we we determine our fate rather than oh, how lucky you are that you know you were born here. But but then again, like you know, a lot of the ideas are almost indis- indisputable. You know, like, like the Aboriginal Australian. You know, like um, it's hard to imagine not giving the Aboriginal Australian a million years or ten million years and and, and building civilization, not because of any inherent defects um, in the person, but rather they simply didn't have domesticable animals, probably. You know, I don't know if you can domesticate a kangaroo over a long enough right. time span or whatever, <laughs> but like, but directionally, um, you know, you, you don't have access to the minerals you need and, the ge- and you don't have the geographic support to kind of create a civilization. So like, um, you know, I think that the, the truth is probably some some strange mix of, 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 of both. And I, do, I obviously don't have the answer, but, but it's interesting to kind of like lean into to either side. Definitely, definitely. And it, it does seem to be, uh, the, the argument I always have with, with people, it, it does seem to be that even if it is the case that everything's determined, you should still probably act like you have a lot of agency um, because that maximizes your chances uh, for, for having a positive outcome. Yeah, this is, this is, I mean, like, you know, like this is one of these high school, I remember debating this, you know, when you come across this, you know, you kind of get really yeah. into it. Like it's a, it's a deep, deep question. So we don't need, to, we're not going to like solve it now, but yeah, I mean, fundamentally, like no one really lives their life as if it were truly deterministic. So it's kind right. of irrelevant. Like how do you do that? Because right. even if you believe it and even if you act according to it, well, you know, like what does it even mean? You know, um, it's kind of, it's, it's so saturating of everything that it kind of becomes uh, meaningless. Like Sam Harris had this absolutely idiotic claim once, which kind of 
turned me off him five or six years ago where he basically <laughs> said, look, look, the universe is not deterministic. You know, you try and – oh, no, he was saying it is deterministic. You, you you go lie down and see how long you can lie there for. No, you'll get up and go about your business. And, and it just totally misses the point, okay, of, right. of, 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 of what it all means. So, like, I, I, think, I think you're right. I think um, it's – it kind of cancels itself out in terms of informing your decisions. And so, you know, I, 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 I think, you know, people, um, your best, it's almost like a, um, like a, like a Pascal's wager. Like it's really only right. upside in betting on agency. You know, you are better off not blaming the universe and others on kind of your actions, whether it's fundamentally true or not, it's like probably unknowable, but you're right. better off acting as if you are the author of your actions. That makes sense. That makes, that makes quite, quite a lot of sense. Um, Misha, I, I, I want to pivot a little bit and talk about uh, something, something interesting. So, you know, your investment, your investment manager, you make investments for a living. Um, how do you think about finding alpha? Um, do you systematically, uh, do you have like a, a system for doing that? You know, like I was recently reading Soros's book on, uh, you know, he has all this concept like reflexivity, et cetera, and how, uh, you know, groups of people make decisions and how that can affect markets. Do you have like a systematic way about thinking uh, about how to find alpha? And perhaps that's kind of fraught with peril because, you know, no one would ever talk about this publicly, right? Uh, but, you know, perhaps you could talk in general terms about how you think about these things. Yeah, so um, like the, the micro kind of matters here. Like I'm a private equity investor, um, which gotcha. is very different to, um, you know, public market investors who, you know, might have many positions and take small positions in liquid stocks and kind of have to kind of periodically take views and it's hyper-competed. I guess, um, you know, private, there are lots of private equity firms, so it's not like a non-competitive market. It is a competitive market globally, um, but um, it, it's really kind of opportunity-specific. Opportunity um, gotcha. It's kind of opportunity-specific, sector-specific, geography-specific, um, um, and so it's kind of hard to talk about it in, in general terms. Like, you know, we don't kind of match an index and try to generate 2% over because we're not enlisted equity, so that's like a totally yeah. foreign uh, language. To, to us, it's really, you know, can we um, build – something, you know, a, a, a position in a market where we're attracting and generating opportunities that are kind of, you know, a down our kind of fair way um, that we can kind of execute on and generate the requisite returns and take a view on, on those assets. So, um, you know, it's kind of like a very blah kind of statement I, I kind of gave you, but like, you know, I work for a software and technology um private equity firm. So the side yeah. position is, is a specific sector focus. And so I'm bullish on the sector. And so that's kind of like my starting position. Um, yeah. So it's, it's like the, that's the macro position that that's the only sector you're kind of playing in. So you're, ch you're choosing that. And then within that, um, you know, there are countless factors around, um, you know, the particular vertical within technology you're kind of focusing on the kind of, um, you know, the, 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 the founders you might be partnering in, partnering with or the management teams or whatever. So I think like, um, you just got to believe uh, ultimately that you can kind of, um, you know, make three times or, or whatever you're targeting. Um, and there's just a, a, a lot of um, ingredients that go into that, um, into that pot. Gotcha. Gotcha. It's very case by case. It sounds like. Yeah. It's kind of hard to be too general. I think, um, you know, I think like, so, so when, when firms market themselves, um, they'll certainly, 
talk about this grand strategy that they pursued and look at their track record and how wonderfully that all falls within that. And if you kind of talk to them every six months or every 18 months, you know, magically there's a different grand strategy that kind of <laughs> that they've been pursuing for 10 years and it's kind of worked out exactly as they said. And that's because these narratives are retrofitted because, gotcha. you know, first of all, the sample size is too small, um, you know, you're inherently opportunistic and the world changes and like life's messy and like there's always a bit of luck and or, or whatever uh, or the macro changes or whatever and, and so the, the truth is that everyone's kind of scrambling to make something fit but then every time you speak to them there's this wonderful neat narrative in a bow in hindsight and, and that's kind of fine i mean as humans it's like an, an investing charlatan thing that's just how like we tell stories and that's kind of that's kind of fine, um, right. but like it's just hard to be um, you know, really honest with with a, with a really clear cut story. Um, I think you know investors um, tend to just be um, you know try to figure it out you know as, as, they, as they go along, and there's a lot of path dependence around the kind of skills and relationships you build along the way that you can deploy in the next opportunity. Gotcha. That makes sense. It, it, it seems to me that uh, perhaps this is tangential, but Elon Musk's great skill is storytelling at some level. You know, it, it lets him like you know raise excess amounts of capital, et cetera, and then you, you get this like um, uh, if well, you're very good at telling these these compelling narratives, it's really important. Yeah, I mean, I kind of see it as part of a broader thing. You know, like um, uh, you know, he's a perfect example of being a man who can exert his will to to wrap the fabric of the universe around him. You know, like, not to be too kind of grandiose, but like, um, you know, you know, storytelling, whether to investors or to employees or to co-founders or to CEOs or to the press or whatever, it's like one thing, okay? It's one thing you're doing um, to kind of create something from nothing. And, and that can't have been at all because, um, you know, he's deployed hard engineering skills across across the opportunities and look and you get a whole bunch of um you know false positives or or i don't know if it's the other way around but like you know there's always a whole bunch of bullshit as well that he's kind of you know said that hasn't really worked out or it's kind of pretty dodgy or whatever but you've kind of got enough um truth enough there there yeah, you're going to have truth that it's like a real thing. And, and maybe they're both sides of the same coin. You know, maybe, you know, if you are going to um, kind of, you know, uh, tell big yarns and and also have some something to, to, to back it up, some of that's going to work out, some some is not. Um, and so you kind of got to kind of take it um, in aggregate. It's probably unfair to kind of, you know, call them out for not having done anything with, you know, neural nets or, or something. I don't even know the status of that right. without crediting him for like building SpaceX, you know, like right. it's pretty, it's pretty astonishing. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I think you're, you're, you're on the money there. Um, I want to uh, take another uh, change of pace here and talk about social norms between men and women and how they've evolved over time. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and how you think about that? Social norms. I mean, like, um, you know, I, 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 I haven't categorized uh, social norms and I, I, don't, I guess the way I think about male-female relations is probably several fold, just kind of linking it to things I've written about recently. Yeah. One, I recently kind of, you know, was, was reading, you know, I was reading about the Comanches and I was like, oh, this is interesting. I was reading about like the little codes and then I was reading like, yeah. you know, the Hebrew Bible and I was like, you know, where has all the polygamy gone? Like there's <laughs> kind of polygamy everywhere. Like, like yes. at history across societies and across time is saturated with the polygamy and I look around and, and like, 
if you mention polygamy, people are like, what? What is that? Like, it's so right. invisible. It's not even offensive. It's just like totally, Gone. totally yeah. invisible. It, it has been exterminated. And so yes. I kind of picked up uh, Joe Henrich's book, you know, Weird, Weird, The Weirdest People. Excellent book. Basically Western Democratic, you know, whatever else it is. And, and actually he paints a pretty compelling story about how the church effectively, accidentally, stamped it out like completely exterminated and and and, and the interesting thing about polygamy is you, know, you can't even have you know like a society with like 20 percent polygamy is a polygamous is fully polygamous society because it's the top 20 percent of men who kind of collect and hoard all these wives who will do so and then you've got these kind of you know incels who, who can't and they become violent and it's not 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 a stable uh, equilibrium and so and so, and so that's why you kind of a society with just like five percent polygamy. It, ha- it actually has to be zero, which, which is kind yes. of which is kind of an interesting feature of, of, of it. And so, um, and so, you know, I, I guess um, the the way I kind of see it, you know, it, I don't. It's not uncommon as a kind of a joke comment, you know, like um, when when a couple get married, you know, the, the, you know someone have a throwaway line about how um, how she had to break the man in or how she had to, you know, <laughs> domesticate him, so, so, so to speak. You know, like you might be, you yeah, might yeah. say that, in, not, not in a cow, so in a fun, yeah. jovial way. He was so domesticated before, before you know, before he was married or, or whatever right, it was. Right, right. I, I Unironically, think we can treat that literally. I, I think men were domesticated as were dogs and as were horses, um, and and um, you know you know they were once kind of roving, violent, um, uh, you know, polygamous men, yes. and, and and eventually you know these kind of institutions accidentally sprung up to kind of constrain elite men, which is kind of remarkable in itself. How does society kind of organically um, uh, you develop in a way that constrains its strongest, most powerful, most violent um, kind of um, cohort. Okay, yeah. and so and so Christian institutions basically evolved in order to do that. And now, like you know, you know, someone might be kind of snarky about that, but fundamentally, you know, my view is that just like oxen are kind of yoked to kind of plough fields, men have effectively been yoked to build civilization. Okay, and so it is almost an unequivocal good. Like the reason we're having this conversation over the, uh, you know, over over these machines and you know this like indistinguishable from magic technology is because um, we effectively um, stopped trying to hoard wives uh, and kill each other, right. and instead directed that energy um, towards um, civilization building. So that's probably like like the, the one kind of thousand year um, yes. and I've kind of written this this like 12,000 word you know um, yeah, piece on this kind of diving into how Native American tribes looked at it how um, how kind of uh, Jews historically have looked at it just out of again it just kind of happened to be reading about these things that kind of stitched together rather than any kind of you know conspiracy or whatever but like but it's interesting like you know the, what I just described to you um is is like it almost sounds weird like it almost sounds conspiratorial right. maybe or, or whatever but like you know like we are so immersed in, in, in you know this is the water we swim in and we don't yes. even notice it that this is kind of what's happened and so um i find that to be like the kind of it's not like a 10-year thing it's kind of the, yeah. the big long year thing then then the other piece of it i think um i think effectively modern dating has broken that down i think 
I think hookup apps have effectively broken that. And for a few reasons, I think one, um, so we, we kind of live now in this pseudo, what I call pseudo polygamous society where the top echelon of men basically have the Uber Eats model of dating and they can basically get um, women delivered um, to their homes and, and how, how, how wonderful is that and, and yeah. ha- ha- happy days. Um, and, and, and partly because of the technology, partly also it's just more discreet, you know, like it's not going right. to the bar, the common bar, everyone's at every every week. It's just like, like you know, the discretion is, is a part of, of, of the new model and so men kind of can hide their success. The guys who aren't getting any, which is most men, um, can kind of hide their shame and, and, and women can hide uh, that, that promiscuity. And so it kind of works in this strange way where everyone has an incentive to stay mum about it. And so you've kind of got this quiet bubbling of this pseudo um, polygamy. Now, the challenge is that, um, you know, and you kind of see it everywhere. I'm not saying it's like the only cause, but it's totally consistent with the story of delayed family formation, declining birth rates, um, you know, delayed, um, you know, marriage and the like. It's totally right. consistent with that story. Um, and, and, and part of the challenge is that pseudo-polygamy is in many ways much worse than real polygamy because it has all the social costs and none of the upsides, you know, because these men are not providing for multiple wives. They're not providing for hordes of children. They're not providing for extended families. It's like costless. It's like totally wild. And by the way, I should say it's it's a trap for them. Like it's easy to kind of get stuck on that hamster wheel. But ultimately, yeah. society has, for a reason, developed these kind of long, uh, dated norms of marriage and like because you know yes. you don't you don't want to be this forty five year old loser trying to sleep with like thirty year olds or twenty five year olds or whatever. Like yeah. actually over the long run, you also want kids and you want grandkids. And it's hard to kind of bridge that gap without a range of social norms. And you just get stuck in this hamster wheel and kind of so ultimately it's not even for their benefit. But the kind of right. breakdown of these long dated norms is kind of propelling every cohort into these strange local minima. Got it. So on the margin, should we just encourage more people to get married? This is something I'm a big fan yeah, of. Yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, it, you almost should trust me because I'm married and um, I've been, you know, I've got three kids and congratulations. And, you know, yeah. and, and I've been out of the market. So in some respect, everyone's always kind of talking their book a little bit here. So, like, so, <laughs> exactly. so, so, so you know, it, it's always impossible to distinguish whether I'm, you know, um, I'm, uh, you know, am, am I a, a resentful guy just having a crack or, or it's like a objective thing? So, like, I'll caveat, I mean, you, people can kind of make their own judgment. I think kids are, like, unequivocally the greatest joys um, a, a man can, can experience. And I'm a baby maximalist. I've got three and, and God willing, we'll have many more. Um, but, like, um, who knows, right? But, like, uh, right. But, you know, to, but to the extent you should trust me, you know, don't know. Um, but, like, um, but, yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally uh, marriage solves a lot of these issues. Like, I mean, the kids thing is this strange cheat code where you kind of get this little bundle of um, meaning. That's kind of unquestioned. Like, like I mean, there are everyone's had kids forever. It's the most kind of ubiquitous experience in human history, almost by definition. And yeah. yet, to you, it is it is non fungible. 
It is right. one-off. It is it kind of delivers everything. You know, there is no more existential angst. I mean, yeah, I'm 34. Maybe this midlife crisis thing or whatever. You know, like we can talk about it again in 20, 30 years. Who knows? Yeah. But just speaking from where I am today, you know, you're just too busy trying to like get to the <laughs> next day and trying to like eke out whatever you can from work or wherever else to kind yeah. of worry about all the other stuff you you worried about before. So I'm very bullish marriage and and and, and kids um, especially so and and you know kids without marriage doesn't really work so um right. so i think i think that's the kind of this that's the bundle you want to kind of go for can you can you talk a little bit about, about you know kids without marriage doesn't really work i'm i'm also a big proponent of this i think it's very important and it's something our our society we at least in the west have have, have kind of stopped pushing a lot um and i think it's important if it is possible for parents to be married well, you know, I, I guess like um, I think I'm totally guilty of this. Like I, I've been guilty of underrating the importance of kind of symbolic, ceremonial, traditional things just, just across the board. I don't need to get too specific, but I'm absolutely yeah. hands up guilty of that. And in hindsight, every single time I reflect on it, it's a mistake. And I think it's it's almost like a Chesterton's fence thing. Like I think it's it's you know, for, for people like us to kind of grow up curious about stuff and reflecting, a yeah. lot of it just seems like bullshit. And, and yeah. until you realize in hindsight that these things matter. I'll give you a totally unrelated example, okay? Stalin, one of his moments, crowning moments of power and coronation, was when when Lenin died, he had the body embalmed and he and, and, and there was this whole state ceremony around yes. it. Now, Lenin won fucking Stalin shot and thrown in a ditch somewhere, basically. Right. But, you know, like, but Stalin seized the moment the and created this coronation. Now, you know, an autist might ask, what are you talking about? A bunch of people stood in a room and kind of spoke to it's each other. Whatever. But that's yeah. actually not how humans work. Humans work, these things, you know, but, you know, these symbolic things, these kind of group ceremonies and rituals hold real power. And so Stalin created a coronation and seized power. Now, these are ethereal kind of con- ethereal co- concepts, but it's the same right. thing as marriage and the same thing as all these other ceremonies where you have an opportunity to forge a new dynamic and to define certain enduring elements in your life and your family's lives. And I think these, you know, we are bereft today of rituals and ceremonies and, and you kind of see it everywhere. You know, people are, are hungry for, for, for rituals. And so, um, and so I think, um, and so I think, um, I don't know how it kind of got onto this, but like, I think, yes. you know, you asked about marriage. So I think, Marriage is important from that perspective. I mean, like, can you have a good family that ever getting technically married? 100%. Okay, that's absolutely fine. Frankly, you know, I think we live in this deranged moment where a lot of women, you know, a lot of my friends who are women who are in their late 30s or mid-30s and they speak to me and they say, Misha, they lied to us. I was wrong 10 years ago. I thought, you know, I'm going to have this great career and I'm going to like, you know, my, all my 
you know, whatever. And like now there's some miserable lawyer somewhere at a great law firm without a partner with despicable mating market um, opportunities and they're miserable. And of course, why on earth would you want to be a miserable lawyer somewhere earning some irrelevant amount of money instead of creating a family with someone? Like, 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 Like we live in this deranged moment where saying that is like somehow conservative position or whatever. Like, like, you know, you need to be conservative to kind of stay on the face of it. Like you have to be a miserable corporation to tell someone that actually you're much better off working for me instead of going creating human life and like rearing human life. And so, um, and so we live in this moment where, uh, you know, so so women, you know, I've got some friends now who are in this situation where, you know, they're kind of pessimistic on finding a partner and they're, um, they're going to have a child alone, okay, like through technology or whatever. And frankly, yeah. I think that's a great second best outcome. You know, ideally, you kind of have a mom and dad and a partner, whatever, you know, yeah. second best option, totally legitimate is having a child uh, another way because children are really, um, you know, I'm so bullish on children, like uh, that, that, that instinct and that option, considering what options available, you know, that is legitimate. I don't know, this is probably a very unkosher view and I apologize to my rabbi and whoever else, but I think, I, I, I think, you know, I'm not a, this isn't like a purist conservative spiel I'm giving. I just think, yeah. you know, have children, otherwise you'll be miserable basically. So, um, <laughs> ten so, out of ten. Yeah, and so and, I mean, I mean, you know, you could kind of tackle your question another way, you know, like, uh, uh, you know, yeah, um, broken families, you know, it's tough, obviously, large dysfunctional communities across the world, part of the reasons for their dysfunction is because um, of kind of broken institutions, you know, I, I wrote about, um, I read this great biography of Clarence Thomas, um, you know, obviously Supreme Court judge and, um, and my great was uh, it my grandfather's son or something. No, it's called. No, um, um, it's called. Uh, no, I think he he might have written that. that's an autobiography. Okay. I read a, a biography about him. It's okay, called gotcha. um, the Enigma of, of of Clarence Thomas, and and it's excellent. And the author doesn't like him, and it doesn't really politically align right. with him. Yes. And to the author's absolute credit, um, like Thomas's charisma and wisdom shines through, and he could see what was happening, the decimation that was happening to the black family. And and it didn't. I didn't realize until I read this, but how patriarchal black society was at the time. And in hindsight, you know, Malcolm X, the Black Panthers, these are deeply charismatic, masculine figures and and, and movements. And now you kind of go to like a Trump march or Black Lives Matter march and it's like pussy hats and, you know, whatever else. Like it's, you don't have that anymore. And so, and so you had this decimation of the black man and the, and and correspondingly the the breaking of the black family and, 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 and the, and, you know, I mean, this is a way bigger issue than, you know, I can kind of, but I I just found that kind of striking. Um, And so, and so, like, communities that, that don't have um, marriage norms don't seem to be going very well. So, anyway, right. I know that's, like, a lot on, on marriage, but you did ask. Yes, absolutely. No, no, I love that. And, Misha, if you don't mind asking, are you religious yourself? Um, look, I'm always, again, I find it, like, hard to kind of answer this question, I think. Like, you know, um, if you're in the top 1% or 5% of anything, um you'll know people who are 10x, 100x what you are. And so, like, am I religious? I mean, I guess compared to, like, probably the average, am I religious compared to, like, an actual orthodox 
Jew and like Chabad rabbi or something. Like absolutely not. Like, you know, um, I'm kind of directionally really, you know, I go to synagogue every Saturday, which I, I find very right. rewarding. You know, I, I put on to fill in, whatever. So like I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, I guess that puts me, um, you know, Definitely on the more religious side of and I keep kosher, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, so that puts put me on the more religious side of of, of things. Um, uh, and, and I've written an essay why practice um, Judaism as well, kind of specifically to kind of hit that on the head. It's not proselytizing. It's not to right. to folks such as yourself, but um, it's, it's it was written to, to my congregation at, at the request of my rabbi. And um, but you know that kind of lays out why I think um, you know. Jews, you know, might find it more rewarding to practice. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So, um, someone once said, um, I think it was like Esther Perel or, or someone like that. I don't, I don't remember, but on, on, on marriage, they said marriage is when love isn't enough is for when love isn't enough. Okay. And you know, I don't want to make it sound bleak, okay? I, I just think, you know, the covenant, what that means, the way I hear that is that the covenant of marriage and the kind of formal structures and rituals of marriage create rails for a long-term relationship. Um, you know, the best paragraph I've ever read on marriage is in Yoram Hazoni's book on or the virtues of nationalism, right? Which is nice. an odd thing to say, but yeah. he has this extended, beautiful framework about, you know, how you might think you're making a choice going into a marriage. You know, you choose a partner, you choose, right. you say, I do. Like there's this kind of artifice of consent around it, but there is absolutely no way. Like, like, like you are not meaningfully consenting to what lies ahead of you over decades. <laughs> The kind of, right. you know, but both the ups, you know, like, yes, many joyous, happy, great things, but the tribulations as well. Yes. And I think marriage creates those guardrails. And I, and I see the analogy the same in religion. Religion is for when God isn't enough. Okay. And again, I don't mean that to be a, in, to be a too heretical here, but like, yes. I think the, 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 the rituals and customs that, um, that religion is is wrapped in provide a deep structure for meaning, for community, um, for tradition. Um, my kids love going to synagogue. I don't think awesome. any of your listeners will go to my synagogue, but like it's a lovely synagogue, but it's quite geriatric. It's in a, it's kind of you know it's kind of an aging, you know, slowing community. It's not a. There yeah. are many young, vibrant communities. It, but the one that happens to be walking distance to my home is older. And again, everyone there is fantastic. My kids yes. are the only ones there. They love it. They have the best time. They go there. It's a ritual I get to do with them. Friday night, we have Shabbat, just our family together. Um, you know, so there are, there, are, there are certain songs and there are certain prayers and melodies that are just you know, beautiful that you repeat every week. You know, you say... The, the Kaddish, you say a mourner's Kaddish um, three or four times, I don't remember exactly, on, on, on a Saturday morning. And, and folks who are um, you know, in mourning, you say, they say it out loud, you say it with them. A few weeks ago, there was a gentleman, his wife just died. He wept as he said it. He was an old gentleman and he said, um, 
you know, I'll, I'll, I'll love her forever, basically, to me. And I'm standing there in awe at this man. I, 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 it's almost painful to look at him and stare and to witness such beauty. And, you know, these moments, um, uh, you know, and they come in different shapes and sizes, kind of permeate these spaces. And where else do you get that? What am I going to be doing instead of going out to brunch? Right. You know, like, um, you know, I, I, I have, I, you know, this is not for everyone. This is not for you probably, um, you know, but for me, this is my tradition. And um, I kind of, you know, and I, f- I found tremendous um, uh, meaning, le- leaning into it. I think from a kind of a macro knowledge perspective, like, like we've kind of talked about that part. I think like, you know, Jewish body of knowledge is like, enormous going back thousands of years across infinite amounts of commentaries and counter commentaries and debates and arguments. Now, like there's a whole bunch of stuff there. Like, like sacrifice is like half the the mitzvahs, half (laughs) the good deeds you can do. And they're like all basically redundant now officially because we don't have a temple at the moment. And so as just a random example, like this (laughs) is just pure um, and there are mystical parts or whatever, but it's so big. Okay. And it's so underrated. No one talks about it. No one's knowledgeable this stuff if you just pick it up and read some of it it holds tremendous value and um it's a way to anchor yourself to things that are permanent um you know partly it's a selection bias you know you surface things that have kind of worked and have continued yes, to work on yeah. but that's kind of the point that's okay like you shouldn't read everything you shouldn't right. there's a whole bunch of stuff don't worry about it but if you surface the good stuff it's complete alpha. Like it is what I, you know, it's, it is, I consider it pure knowledge and spiritual alpha lying on the sidewalk um, right. that's available for you. And I'm certain it's the same for other traditions. It's not like a, a Judaism thing. You know, right. whatever your tradition is, um, you, know, it, you know, if you just start to take parts of it, or you, you need the right posture towards it that suits you. You know, some people, you know, you can't take it too literally or some people need to take it really literally or, or whatever it is, whatever your kind of right. exact, um, you know, mix of seriousness and irony and introspection and selection, you know, like you need to find the right entry point. But if you find the right entry point as I have, as my family have, you know, I found it tremendously rewarding. That's great. That's great. I, I, I do think that's a, a really important um, sentiment you just I- expressed, and it, it seems like uh, people still like they always consistently underrate this. It's you know the the t- you know selection pressure of a very large amount of time on any tradition or knowledge base. You know can craft like very like uh you know important truths that you should go out and seek out but it seems like we ignore it we're always like trying to read the thing that just came out, but they, it seems like we should be much more biased to reading older older texts. Yeah, I, I, I think so. I mean, um, most people don't read at all, right? Like, or they read, right? Like, like I mean, that's most people. And, I mean, that's kind of fine, I think. Um, the the way these institutions have been built are to be mass, um, you know, or community events. Yeah, I'm just reading A History of Texas right now, okay? Nice. By Ferenbach. And it's fantastic. It's called The Lone Star State, something, something. It's fantastic. And so, you know, it's, it's saying how... Um, uh, whilst, you know, all the kind of Texan rednecks, you know, weren't, um, 
you know, particularly educated, whatever, you know, they had a high literacy rate and, you know, they read the Bible and they were, um, and, and, and they kind of saw through high talking charlatans, um, kind of partly as, 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 a, as a result. Like these are, you know, when, when, um, when Luther first mass published his leaflets, it wasn't talking to the priests, it was talking to the masses. When, when under Charlemagne, um, these began mass producing um, the Bible, again, it was to kind of arm priests to create local communities with just average peasants and these kind of spread um, literacy. And so these are, these are mass, this, this is not, you know, for a priestly Brahmin class. This is for, um, for, for the masses. And it's kind of worked. And I think in this moment where we're addicted to our screens, um, when, uh, you know, there are no more, at some point they asked me, they said there are no more places for men to get together that, you know, um, synagogue is, 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 is one of them, you know, like, like I go to orthodox synagogue and, and, and men and women are segregated. Um, so that's like kind of, kind of one. Um, but like, you know, and he pointed out only synagogues and strip clubs. That's, that's where men congregate. And, and I only go to one of those, but, but, like, right. <laughs> but the point is, you know, um, you know, we've got some male, um, Club, gentleman clubs, like I mean, in a literal sense, not strip clubs, like yeah. like, like like um whatever they're called here, um you know, and like it looks pretty miserable to me, to be yeah. honest. Like I, I don't really want to go have lunch with a bunch of dusty old business right. dudes. Okay, it's not really my thing. Um, but you know, this is kind of periodic annual rage in newspapers about how these things exist, and it's like you know, fifty meters down from a female gym which no one has a problem with okay like and again like i just think um the current zeitgeist um is increasingly hostile to you know basic male needs and and the kind of asymmetry between you know different preferences of of the genders uh, basically and so i think you need to create those spaces to allow you to do that. You know, maybe in some communities going to the pub, maybe someone's who's going to church, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe unions, you know, unions were pretty, you know, masculine kind of um, movements, whatever it was. But like in this moment, um, we, we, we don't have um, many of them. And so I think um, you know, whatever your jam, you've just got to kind of create um, your own. That's great. That's great. I, I think that's, that's well put and, and an important note. We, we definitely miss nowadays. Um, Misha, I, I want to observe something I, I find interesting, and this just could be a hundred percent selection effects. Um, there, is, there seems to be a, a vertical of people who are are very smart. They read Scott Alexander, you know, kind of less wrong adjacent, but much more like generally like Scott a lot more, and are religious. I think you know, resonant contrary, and my friend resonant um, Lars Doucet, you know, he's an Eastern Orthodox, a good friend of mine. He won the book review contest. You are religious yourself, Jeff. You like, I, I can keep going down the list. Uh, you know, quite a few people. Um, do you think there, there is something about, you know, Scott's writing that is uh, intuitive to people who are, you know, smart, religious, interested in these kinds of issues, like to think about things, or is it just selection effects? Uh, they're people like me. And that's why I kind of gravitate to them. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I mean, he's probably done, he's probably surveyed this, and yeah, he's yeah. probably got the probably, probably get up we, exactly. Right. We could actually look it up what the answer we is. Should, yeah, uh, I mean, he, he's an atheist, I think, um, and so I, I think he's not religious at all. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd guess his readership skews right wing. 
So I, I don't really know why. I think he'd probably reject that label. He'd, yeah, he's, he's social democrat himself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but I suspect, I'm actually not sure, not sure why. I think, um, and this might be self-serving and this might be bullshit, but like there's just something about the way of like, calling a spade a spade and trying to seek truth for its own sake rather than kind of couched in um, kind of, um, you know, social niceties that kind of is more attractive to that crowd. I don't know if that's true. Like I imagine like the right wing has its own kind of derangements and its own kind of social niceties that it, that it requires conformity to. I imagine. So I don't know if that's going to be cute to, to say that. I guess my short answer is I have absolutely no idea. Um, and it probably is a bit of a selection effect um, of you yeah. just kind of plucking out folks you're interested absolutely. in and it happened to be like that. But um, yeah, it, it's, I'm not sure what drives um, these readerships. I mean, they're very powerful. You know, like I, I've um, I've had a few folks reach out to me, and I've had coffee or whatever yeah. uh, about people from either Australia or overseas, or they happen to be in town or something, and they kind of came across me first on Scott Alexander's blog or or elsewhere. Um, and and you know these things, and it's quite a diverse group of folks. And um, yeah, I mean, it is interesting. Like, it's a, it's kind of the, the magic of of the internet. I mean, one reason yep. I write, frankly, is because I, you know, I, I write pretty eclectically about a broad range of things. Love it. And, um, and I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm able to share it with people who care instead of um, because I self-select into it rather than right. harassing my mates or like people right. who are like, what are you talking about, Misha? Um, yeah. And so, um, and, and that's been absolute blessing. I make absolutely no money from it. It's purely a passion project and it's got no pathway to being kind of financially rewarding, but it's enormously personally rewarding. And I, and I've, um, you know, I get, you know, I get emails from, from folks with who I can kind of build rapport and, and that and connect with. And, and that's rewarding. I love that. I love that. Um, and the same reason I run this podcast is good to talk to interesting people. I wouldn't otherwise, you know, be able to, and learn from them. Um, well, Misha, thanks so much for taking the time today. Uh, where can people find you? Where should we send them? Yeah, so I think um, I've been talking about my my uh, newsletter a lot. So I guess um, that's probably the, the starting place. It's called Kvetch, K-V-E-T-C-H. Love it. Um, and Kvetch in Yiddish basically means having a whinge. So like, as you can hopefully tell, like, like none of this we should be taking kind of too seriously um and it's basically where i just write about all these kinds of subjects or whatever i'm reading at the time um it's free it's free to subscribe otherwise i'm probably like tweeting about stuff so um but um yeah check it out we'll put a link down in the show notes well thanks so much really appreciate it brilliant thanks for having me on special thanks to our sponsor bismarck analysis for the support bismarck analysis creates the bismarck brief a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.